Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Jamie Mustard, a multimedia consultant, teacher, and interdisciplinary artist and designer, as well as the author of The Invisible Machine, which covers somewhat of a miracle treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, which he explains in this interview, should be thought of as post-traumatic stress injury, which has to do with the sympathetic nerve system and rebooting that after periods of increased trauma or stress response. In this conversation, we talk about this treatment and its impact and its import. And Jamie opens up and talks about its influence on his own life growing up in the middle of poverty in East LA, as well as anecdotes of other people who've been affected positively by this treatment and whose PTSD so-called has been alleviated or abated or actually cured after this funny little procedure that's been around since the 1920s. If you are interested in more information about this treatment or Jamie's other work, links are all in the description. Without further ado, here is Jamie Mustard. And should I ping Corey? Is he coming in with us? I thought so, but I'm totally cool just to pick your brain. I I, I think we should. I think he wanted me to do it on my own. I kept asking oh. him, and he kept saying, "But up to you." you know, oh no, I'm in no, your no, hands. no! He, cool. Yeah, he spe- he he speaks incredibly highly of you, by the way. Yeah, He's, and I'm excited, and I'm really thank you for having me. Absolutely, it's my pleasure. He's been speaking about the work that you've been doing. Uh, along with Eugene Lipov, Lipov, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on this crazy new thing, um, and and Corey told me about his story with it or his experience with this. Uh, what what not a cure, or therapy, or treatment? We but... can. Well, I mean, I think it's subtle, but it's it's. But what it is is maybe one of the most. I will say without hyperbole that I think it's probably the most important medical invention since the discovery of penicillin. Maybe the, I think it dwarfs the polio vaccine in terms of lives it can save. Hmm. Um, I think that it is, is maybe the greatest human innovation since the moon landing. We can reset the nervous system. And there's so many things, you know, I wouldn't call myself anti-woke. I would call myself pro-data, which probably makes me anti-woke, right? Meaning I'm not a big fan of bumper stickers. I'm pretty intersectional. I grew up poor and I'm a mixed person. And I, when I, when I listen to woke people speak, I'm like, they're never from neighborhoods like I grew up in. They don't, it's always middle-class to upper middle-class black people. You know, I have a cousin that's a, uh, you know, a very accomplished woke kind of activist and writes policy for BLM. You know what I mean? And I'm kind of proud of her as my cousin, but I'm also, and I also think she's smart, but I'm also kind of, so one of the, one of the things that we could talk about, I think that a lot of this kind of angry, woke, um, virtue signaling comes from 
a dysregulated nervous system, a physiological issue. So that's mm. what, another thing that we could talk about outside of, you know, things we could talk about in terms of uh, gender dysphoria and and that's and how I think that may be related also to the nervous system. Yeah. Well, th- so it's a big, it's a huge conversation and it, it's start, well, where, where would you like to start? Should we, should we do bi- biographical uh, or one thing that it says in the press release, which I think is really catching. So whoever's mm-hmm. doing this press release has really uh, got their head on straight is that it, it's kind of challenging the narrative around what post-traumatic stress disorder is um, as, as an yeah, injury yeah. of the body. Yeah, they, right? yeah. I mean, I think we could start with that. I mean, I don't know your audience. I don't know how quickly you want to get into um, issues of how the nervous system may relate to these other things. It might, if you think your audience is up for it, it might be good to kind of get into this idea of, and I can explain it very quickly, very powerfully, how post-traumatic stress is 100% a biological injury. And even the most cynical person, we can open up with this, that might be listening, if I kind of give this brief narrative of why we know it's true, nobody could argue with it. Hmm. We call it a broken leg you can't see. Right. And so it's, it's, you know, we have all these people walking around with this physical injury in their body and they act a little crazy because it makes you crazy. And we're telling them that they have a mental disorder. I mean, it's pretty fucked up. That's like to give somebody that stigma when um, they have a physical condition, like you wouldn't see somebody with a broken leg and go, you have broken leg disorder, get over it. You know, what's wrong with you? How come you can't pull it together like other people? Right. Yeah. So it's incredibly stigmatizing. We can get into that. I am, you know, interested in talking about it. Like, you know, one of the things that I'm very interested in is, you know, we, we live at a time where we're marketing to people that um, it's unsafe to be female. We're on, we're marketing this to, to little girls. I mean, they've never had access to that kind of before the Internet. Little girls were not being told from the time they were eight years old, nine years old, 12 years old, 10 years old, that it's unsafe to be a woman. Right. So I do think that the chronic stress of for young girls being on social media, you can get an overactive sympathetic nervous system, which is a biological injury to your body. And I can explain the science and anatomy of it yeah. from chronic stress. It's actually the more common way of getting it. What they call it prolonged allostatic load. There's guys that come back from Afghanistan and they come back with this thing called operator syndrome. It is really just an overactive sympathetic nervous system. These are guys that maybe they were never even in a firefight, just the fear of the IED and being away from their families and not coming home, carrying that stress for a year, they will come back with a biological injury to their body. That is the exact same biological injury that I received growing up in poverty near downtown LA. And that is the exact same biological injury that young women are truly young people, but young women are experiencing with uh, social media going onto phones. And that's why we're seeing the preteen suicide rates that we're seeing and, and all sorts of um, depression, anxiety, hypervigilance, hyperarousal. It's all a biological injury and we can get into, I mean, I don't know how deep you want me to go now so that, you know, yeah, let's so, go, let's go. So, so I, I like this, I like this line of inquiry. So how okay. is prolonged stress? How does that injure yeah. I mean, listen, when you go, when you experience, you have to look at it like what would happen if you were living in the South American jungle 2000 years ago. Okay. And a, and a puma or and a, and a giant puma jumped out at you, a tiger. Okay. Um, you, your amygdala sends a signal uh, to a gangle of nerves on your neck right here and here. 
called the stellate ganglion. That is your sympathetic nervous system. That's where you get when you almost swerve and hit your car, you almost fall. That's that thing that happens where your body goes into stimulus response to catch yourself or to avoid getting into an accident. That's your fight or flight system. Okay. Now, if that um, normally when that happens, we're up for about four or five hours, maybe an hour or two, and then we come back to baseline. Well, if that trauma is too overwhelming, like in a sexual assault or your buddy seeing his head blown off in front of you, then uh, that system does not come back to baseline. It stays up and it's actually a survival mechanism. If you think about it, if we all had random uh, reactions to survival, we wouldn't survive as a species. We need to have a, a homogenous reaction to threat. Okay, so overwhelming threat changes your biology. I don't, I would rather answer that once we're going because I'll like how we know that. It actually changes your biology and you can see it on a brain scan. And with this treatment, you can basically power down the sympathetic nervous system. It powers out 10 minutes later at baseline. You can reset the nervous system to the pre-trauma state. And, and so it's, it's, you can't see it the way you can see a broken leg, but I think as the awareness comes out with this book and everything, uh, it's why I wrote it was to kind of, it's been at the extreme for 20 years. Obama endorsed it back in 2010. I, I wanna bring it to the living room, yoga instructors, plumbers, CEOs, teachers. I think that 40 to 50% of the US and global population may be suffering from this injury. And I think in five years, this can be as people should be getting this the way they're getting LASIK. So, so just to re recap. Yeah. We, we have a system that, that uh, allows us to respond in a heightened manner to life, life threatening stimuli. Yes. Right? Um, but in the modern world with modern technology, let's just say the internet, uh, we're, we're constantly like juicing ourselves up with, you know, we, we see something happen, you know, a thousand miles away. And we, we think we, we feel that sympathetically, that stress on our system. And then we kind of go back to it. And we seek yeah, to yeah, I mean, think, maintain listen, it. Or? I mean, I could get, I, I have a lot I can say on this, right? I mean, I just wrote a book, a very um, well-received, you know, I got the top trauma doctors and neuroscientists in the world to talk to me. Okay, yeah. so I've been living this for a year and a half. Gabor Mate is on the cover of my book, you know. I, I, I mean, but the, the answer, you know, it's not, you know, it's really interesting what you just said because um, it's an, our evolutionary biology for 50,000 years, conservatively, up until 300 years ago, was natural. We were living in natural environments. We were relatively agrarian. It wasn't until the first industrial revolution of the 17th century, coal and transportation, that we started to really see the advent of what we call now cities. So this is three, 350 years old. Okay. Before, so right now we live in a time where we live in an artificial box. We get into another artificial box that roves to go into another artificial box, okay? Where we work all day and then we get back into the artificial box to go back to the other, and we're hit with all this messaging. We're not designed anatomically to deal with this constant stimulation. In fact, nature mitigates the sympathetic nervous system. If you feel wired and like shit, and oh my God, it's, you know, having a horrible day, you walk into nature. You, you calm right down, you get present. Animals and nature make us present. So the things that would normally mitigate us are gone and the overstimulation and the synthetic, synthetic and artificial environments are uh, how we live. Um, so 
That's mm. why I think the numbers are so high. But you have to think of it, uh, Benjamin, like if we were living in tiger infested jungle, that system staying on from chronic stress would keep us alive. But having but when once it gets switched on, it's actually an injury and it can't you can't out yoga it. You can't out psilocybin it. Okay. You can't out. Right. You can't hyperbaric it once it's truly broken and i can explain what that means anatomically the only way to reset it is like resetting a broken leg so people are doing all these therapeutics that are really valuable but they're doing it over a broken leg you can't see okay and how how is that an injury like what does that make how does that make sense like it's it's it, it's just constantly well, in I mean, a we've been state calling that it, it mean... in, you know in uh, world war one they called it shell shock yes Right. In world, I think in the Civil War, they called it the invisible wound. Right. We started calling it, you know, the thousand yard stare, PTSD. Um, there's, uh, uh, you know, uh, in Vietnam, I think. Right. Uh, but actually, you've act well, I mean, maybe we want to say this when we're rolling or I can tell you and we'll just go over it again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, basically, um, you want we, the we are rolling. We are, yeah. Because I didn't because normally it asks me if I'm, you know, got it. You were recording, and I have to say, got it. No, I. Yeah, no, we're. I'm recording on three different levels. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Right, cool. No, no, no. It's all good. It's all good. Okay, so think about it like this. Um, if, uh, okay, if you take a dog, a goat, a rabbit, a cat, or a cow, and you beat it and terrorize it, okay. Uh, for a month, six months, and then you stop and you never t terrorize it again. Okay. That animal will be different and it will be different in one of two ways. It will be timid or it will be highly aggressive. We didn't just give that cow or that cat or that rabbit a biological, dis we, we didn't just give it a mental disorder. Okay. We, we changed its biology. Um, there was a book uh, written in that came out in 1970 called Violence and the Struggle for Existence. And uh, it was two years after, written by a guy named Dr. Frank Ockberg, who does the forward to my book, who also defined Stockholm Syndrome for the FBI in the 1970s. And he uh, wrote this book with, all, with a bunch of Stanford scientists in the 1970s. Coretta Scott King did the uh, intro to that book because it was two years after Martin Luther King had been assassinated. And there's a chapter in there called Biology and Aggression, where they give the example that I just gave you. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, 35, 40 years later that that doctor who wrote that book um, came across my co-author, Dr. Lipov, who'd figured out what the mechanism is. So what we call it an injury because you've actually created a biological change in your body, which is now affecting your brain, that you can remediate. Okay, so it, it's a, it's a broken leg you can't see, but unless in, in in well, the doc likes to say it's a broken leg you can't see unless you have the wrong scanner. So how it works is, um, if you have overwhelming trauma or you carry chronic stress, you can get this from distant parents. You can get this from your dad not hugging you or your mother needling you or bullying, or what's really really tragic, and this is how I think it relates to you know, some gender dysphoria, because I'm an ally of people that are really suffering from that. But it's been, you know, it's a mass, it, the numbers don't make any sense, right? So um, I do believe that, it, that it's it's highly connected to what we're seeing in terms of gender dysphoria, in terms of, of uh, preteen 
girls, right? You can, because the comparison culture for a young girl um, is staggeringly stressful. And we weren't telling young girls in the past that, um, you know, you, they were kind of coveted by their family. Now you can't be a young girl and not being told, not be told in every aspect of media that um, you're not safe. That's or you're stressful. not enough. You're not or you're not enough. enough. Yeah, you're not enough. You're not yeah. safe. That's a massive amount of stress. So what happens is when you carry chronic allostatic load like I did from poverty and childhood abandonment, or you uh, have this blunt force, like, uh, well, I'll give the example of a blunt force trauma, okay? Um, your brain, your amygdala sends a signal to this ganglion of nerves in your neck. That's what jerks you into either save your life or to fight and kill the tiger. Peter Levine's work, running from the tiger. Um, if that's too overwhelming or you carry the threat of tigers for too long, that's really good if you live in a chronic chronic. It, uh, uh, a tiger infested jungle because then you're hyper vigilant and you're careful for the tigers or because a tiger almost killed you. You're going to be careful for tigers for the rest of your life. Right. Yeah. So it's good that it, it helps us to survive to change our anatomy 2000 years ago. Okay. Uh, but what's actually happening in the body is when you send that signal, if the trauma is too overwhelming or you carry chronic stress for too long, you get the, you have nerves here. That is the fight or flight system. Um, when the trauma is too overwhelming or you carry the chronic stress, you get two changes. You get a change in the brain. You get an increase in, of norepinephrine and NGF, what's called nerve growth factor. So now where there was four nerves here, there's now eight or 12. So what that means anatomically is this signal, these, these nerves in your neck, your sympathetic nervous system is reversing. The signal is reversing, telling your brain, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, um, that your life is in danger, that you're you, that you're under threat. I mean, imagine this. You grow up in poverty like me, and you have this biological injury. So the most innocuous, banal circumstance feels like life or death. And I can get into exactly what those symptoms are. Yeah, let's, let's do like a anecdote, just a personal anecdote about why why for you was poverty so stress-inducing? Oh, I mean, for me, I didn't even know if it was going to work on me. I, I, I came to this treatment as a patient and befriended the doctor. And then because I'm an artist and a successful author, I ended up thinking that this was so important to write a book on it because it was out there. It was just at the extremes. It was it was at 9-11 first responders, uh, the, the military uh, or special forces. I mean, I started it was when I went to I got invited for my art and communications work to speak at Fort Bragg to special forces and, and um, psychological operations. And that's when my interest got peaked in the subject. I was never interested in trauma. I was never interested in post-traumatic stress. I was in denial about my own my entire life. But I okay. was born in and raised in and out of institutional environments um, oh, and okay. with very little human touch in, in abject poverty near downtown, in and around downtown Los Angeles, in Mexican neighborhoods. Okay. okay? I was at Fort Bragg speaking for my like Malcolm Gladwell type work that I do. Um, which has to do with art and and business. And um, this guy, uh, Jeff Dardia, who runs the Health Initiative Task Force at Fort Bragg, showed me this thing called operator syndrome on his phone. It was identical to what I now know as an overactive sympathetic nervous system, and I can go through those symptoms with you. When I first saw that on his phone at Fort Bragg, 
I didn't see Benjamin. I wasn't interested in the military. When I first got invited to speak, I was not wanting to do it. You know, I know what violence looks like. I know I wasn't really interested in assisting the U.S. military or, you know, being involved in somebody that was going to help with American foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I developed a relationship with two special forces colonels, and I have a different point of view on that now. Okay. Uh, at least in relation to the special forces. So I went and did it. Um, but when I was looking at that operator syndrome, which is a military condition that you get, if you're never in a firefight, you're just in Afghanistan for a year away from your family with the threat of death. When I first saw those eight or nine symptoms, and I can walk you through them, I didn't see the military. I saw the Mexican neighborhoods where I grew up, and my mind started reeling. And I got, so I go, I wonder. I wonder if I went into a prison with a, uh, and interviewed murderers that grew up in poverty and had this injury and they were suffering from a crime, uh, you know, they committed an impulse crime when they were 20, if they would have the exact same, quote, mental symptoms, which are really biological, is a biological injury, as a person coming back from Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And uh, a year and a half ago, I did that. I went in with a film crew and interviewed murderers to see if they were having the same symptoms. Um, so why why is it called operator syndrome, operator syndrome, because it's special for, they call, they call special operations forces. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay. So when you work as special forces in the military, you're called an operator. Okay. Okay. That's why they call it operator syndrome. So here's an anecdote. Say I have, so can I go through the symptoms and give you a really. Yeah, please. And just, just anecdote. for sake of discussion, how, what's the turnover rate for these operators, the, these special forces? Is it like four years, 10 years? I guess, it, I guess it varies. I mean, most I of these guys don't ever get deployed more than, you know, 36 months at the outset. You know, you, okay. it starts to wear on you. Um, when we, I'm nervous, you know, one of the, when I first just, uh, uh, started break, talking to the military about this, cause these colonels that invited me to Fort Bragg, they run all the training for all of special forces. And one of them said to me, they knew nothing about this, even though they were already doing 10 a day at Womack, but they were doing it off of an old paper. So they weren't getting the result that we see now. And, um, when I was first telling these colonels who are now close friends about it, they say, oh, don't, you know, the military is going to abuse that. And I said, what are you talking about? They said, We're gonna, they're going to use it to turn people around in the field. And I said, come on. And then a year later, I was at Fort Bragg, and I found out that Delta Force was already doing that. What do you mean? Right? So if, if somebody starts uh, getting off their game, then they go through this treatment to get back on yeah, the game? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Olympic athletes will do this treatment. So somebody like Lindsey Vaughn, I'm not calling her out specifically, gets into a skiing accident at 65 miles an hour, Okay her reaction time and her ability to ski is going to change. She goes, resets her sympathetic over, uh, and then her reaction times go back to normal. The arm, the military studied this the most and proven that, uh, the Navy SEAL, the Navy did a study, I think that proven that when they went, people went out and reset this nervous system, that the reaction times went back to normal huh. or close okay. to it. 
Um, okay. but what not, it, not better. If, if you, if you don't have trauma, you take this, you're not going to like, it's not going to, it's not enhancing performance. It's resetting performance. To it's resetting performance. Okay. It's right. resetting performance. But if you made it into Delta force or you're an Olympiad, you're a high performer. In fact, that's one of the th- reasons that I was willing, I got it. You know, like I was in denial about being even traumatized till about six years ago. I, I reached a level, a certain level of success and I wasn't as happy as what I was driven. I thought if, Poverty and ignorance meant pain, then affluence and education would mean contentment or pleasure, you know? So I pursued those things and overshot, over uh, got further than I thought I maybe could have. I mean, I tried. And as I got more successful, that wasn't go, those feelings were going away. And that freaked me out. So I knew a military psychologist through my literary agent, and he started telling me about this. And then I, had a forensic neuroscientist that I knew uh, who's a clinician and a researcher um, vet it for me. Okay. Uh, and so to me, the idea that it was a biological injury, because when you grow up like in, with abandonment, like I was, you know, you don't go to doctors. So the idea that I would fly to Chicago and do this uh, treatment, that's not, you know, known outside of, I mean, it's been on Rogan. It's been on 60 minutes. It's been on CBS this morning. It was on the doctor show all the time where we're, we're you know, why wouldn't artists write a book with a with a well-known researcher and prominent scientist? Because I didn't see the extreme. I saw the living room. I saw tons of people in America that don't think they had trauma, don't think their kids have had trauma, don't think their spouses had trauma, yet they have these symptoms, which I, I can give you. Yeah. And and um, you know, and so and they're so they're they're confused. And so I wanted that truth out there. Uh, 12, you know, 12 in 2012, Frank Ochberg, a famous psychiatrist who defined Stockholm syndrome for the FBI. He, uh, in the seventies, he started, he's now, he started pushing at the name change from post-traumatic stress disorder to post-traumatic stress injury, which is what it is. Okay. Okay, So so, yeah. Uh, just, just to ground it, couch it in your story. So if somebody grows up in your, um, in the conditions that you do, there's kind of like, I guess there's maybe more than two paths to take, but one is to, you know, try to succeed at life. Mm -hmm. And the other is to kind of succumb to criminality or just succumb to like, I I live in a shitty world. I'm going to be a shitty person or I live in, I live, I got a shitty lot. I'm going to try to improve my lot. So you went the, I'm going to try to improve my lot route, but every time you achieved some sort of success or, or step out of your trauma, your baseline, your baseline would just like follow you. Like you, you would just, you would be chased by it, it, these so symptoms. No one's ever put it that way, but it's an incredibly astute and, and spot on way of uh, um, saying it, you know, and then seven years ago, you know, I was signed to the agency group. I mean, I eventually moved agents, which became, which was bought by uh, UTA. So I was at one of the top talent agencies in the world at that would be being represented by the head of literary who also represented my heroes, the RZA. Bill not a science guy, you know, yeah. I was in the same stable as Eminem and 50 cent for literary. Right. Yeah. And, and then things just have progressed from there. You know, I have had a very unusual life. I was, I could read at a high level at a young age, but as far as education was concerned, I was semi-literate until I was 19. And I got an opportunity to change my life by a relative that offered me a very unique proposition to focus on studies without a monkey on my back. And it just turned out without poverty sitting on my back. I mean, I started off doing remedial classes at a community college uh, 
at 19 years old for, I probably had a first grade writing level and math level. Um, and five and a half years later, I graduated less than five and a half years later, I graduated from the London school of economics. So I've had a very interesting trajectory of living in both extremes, Benjamin. I've lived in the worst kind of poverty you can imagine. Five people, no air conditioning, eight people in a 100 square foot apartment with no air conditioning and a hot plate and dust and decay everywhere in Los Angeles drought weather, right? I mean, you know, real roach infested environments where when I, when I, I slept on a floor as a kid and had to and would sleep with my a shirt over my face so that roaches wouldn't crawl in my mouth. We're talking, you know, I don't want to gross everyone out, but like I've seen a lot of reality. And then very quickly, I was around the wealthiest, most uh, privileged people in the world. Yeah. And that has been a I think it's given me a unique perspective on how I see pretty much everything. But I just, it, it's just kind of, a, it's a, it's an American or it's just a classic story like rags to riches. Right. But there's something, yeah, I mean, even in those contexts, there's something that is wounded or injured about you. So you well, could yeah. just to give to the, give the lie to, you know, just pull yourself out of poverty, pull yourself out, but you just like working hard enough is going to, to save you. That's a, that's a, that's a lie. Yeah. You can't, there's like, there's no such thing as a self-made person in my opinion. I've never seen one. Okay. I had angels at various stages. I, I had various physical conditions because I was not being observed that almost killed me several times as a child where in that last lick of time, I was rushed to the hospital by a relative that came by. Right. So, um, it is a, (laughs) um, once you have this injury, like, you know, you, the, 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 the symptoms are what you'd experience if you were running from a tiger, if a tiger was chasing you, okay? And we're designed to live in that state for about 90 seconds where we either kill the tiger, fight, or flee from the tiger. We're not, so when we live there all the time, it discombobulates our immune system. It destroys the scavenger system in our immune system. It, le- it leads to mm. cancer. It leads to autoimmune disease. Yeah. We, you know, Nadine Burke Harris has done, uh, a physician in Oakland has done incredible work where she's proven that our ACEs score, adverse childhood experiences, is the leading cause of disease in adults. Well, what's the mechanism of doing it? Yes. It's the over. It's the it's the nervous system being discombobulated that's causing all the trouble. Okay. You know, if you've read Body Keeps the Score, great. The body keeps the score. That's true. Now what? Yeah. If bo- the body keeps the score, the sympathetic nervous system is the scorekeeper. That's what's causing the damage, and okay. it can now be reset. So, as far as like growing up in that environment, you either succumb. Like, yeah, they 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 talk about what becomes a dark, cynical personality which is really a biological injury I know now, but I've read academic papers on what's called a dark cynicism uh, that when poverty or that kind of mindset overtakes you, but that's really a biological injury. It's not a truly a cynicism. Okay. Um, Hmm. And uh, you, so for me, I was not thinking uh, I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to fight and I'm going to make it. I was thinking, I'm fucking desperate and I'm going to try. Okay. Um, and it was a struggle, but I kept my nose clean. I, I didn't, I was, I was playing chess in the environment to a degree that I was not going down the path that my brother went down a little bit. I was like, you know, I saw him get involved with law enforcement. I saw him get involved with drugs and I was like, I'm not going to doing any of that. I'm not going to take anything. I'm not going to. Uh, and so, but it was more, it was never, eventually it became a plan, but 
um, I was never thinking that I'm going to overcome this and go to one of the top most prestigious schools in the world. Uh, never. I was more just, I have to get the fuck away from here. And it turned out, uh, but, but 100%, you know, what, what you're making me think of a little bit is Horatio Alger more than Charles Dickens, hmm. you know, Horatio Alger. He wrote all these books, I think in the thirties, he was one of the most prolific writers in the thirties. And he was different than Dickens with, you know, which is that great story that you're talking about, that great American story, which is rags to riches. Horatio Alger wrote all these books and it was more like rags to respectability, huh. right? The guy got out of poverty and maybe he didn't get rich, but he got, he did well and he got the girl, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, it, and those stories in the thirties, I think it was post depression where he was probably the biggest writer in the world with those stories post depression. I could have my timeline wrong, but I, but I, I think so. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so that's what I think. Um, but, but you but get out time, of poverty, but that poverty sticks with you. The poverty oh, yeah, mindset, oh, yeah. maybe. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Man. And I mean, so like, what, what are some of those symptoms that when you came across this in, in like the battle scarred, you know, operators, they are like, wait, hold on. This is me. How did you yeah. see that reflect? Well, I saw really what I saw Mexicans, you know, I, I, I grew up in Mexican neighborhoods and I, and I hated it. But I always had a deep affinity for Mexican people because of the family values, the work ethic. One thing I learned when I was a really young boy, and then I'll answer your question, is I would watch these guys. And there, you know, we have this park in L.A. that is a working class park. Uh, I mean, everybody uses it. More working class people use it called Griffith Park. And if you stumble across a Mexican birthday party and you're five years old, seven years old, and they have a pinata, they'll let any kid join. And that's magic. Right. So, you know, I hated the poverty at the time. You know, when I got older, I realized that it was a great privilege to live in a cultural mix like that, to just be bombarded with so much diversity, even though I was unaware of it at the time. But yeah, so yeah, this is me. Okay. So you'd have to look at it like the symptoms you'd experience if you were running from a tiger. Okay. If a tiger jumped out of nowhere, you'd have anxiety about the tiger. Is the tiger going to eat me? You'd have a hair trigger, react, you'd be reactive. You know, where's the tiger? Where's the tiger? You'd be hyper vigilant about the tiger. You'd be hyper aroused about the tiger. You'd be paranoid, more mildly paranoid. Where's the tiger? Where's the tiger? You would have a constant sense of doom. Okay. The tiger is going to get me any second. Uh, these 25% of these guys that come back from Afghanistan have ED. You can't have sex if you're running from a tiger. You can't sleep if you're a tiger's right there. Okay. And in the military community, where people are trained to protect, the ultimate form of flight is suicide. And in the neighborhoods where I grew up, where violence is a little cheap and violent behavior is a little more acceptable, uh, the ultimate form of fight is homicide. So think about this, Benjamin. You have a kid that grows up in poverty like me, and he's dry, and he's a working class kid with good parents, and he has a busted tail light because he's poor. But he grew up with the stress of poverty. So the most banal situation becomes life or death to him. And then a a first responder, a police officer who everybody shits on, but is like, uh, when you grow up in poor neighborhoods, you have there's a love hate relationship with the police. Okay, black people are culturally conservative. Nobody calls the police more than black people or working or poor people when they need them. But so it's a complicated relationship. Okay, Um, but you say you have this police officer. And that police officer is dealing with constant threats to the life every day, very incredible chronic allostatic load situations. 100% of the time, if you're a cop, police officer in the field, you're going to have this injury. 
So you got two people with a biological injury where they're, the, the signal in their neck is telling their brains that the most innocuous banal situation like a donut or a cheeseburger or a traffic stop is life or death. So that so, you know, we, we have these concepts where we're kind of trying to attack, you know, systemic racism. And we need to. Does, does that exist? Sure. Right. Uh, uh, but you you have this scenario. You got two people with this biological injury and they have an interaction over a traffic stop. One person goes to the morgue and both of their lives are forever changed. And we're looking at all these other things when really at the heart of what's going on is this uh, prescient biological injury to their body. So when did you first come across uh, proof that this, uh, this remedy was a remedy? Like what, what stopped you in your tracks? It sounds like you were, you were seeing something reflected back onto you about it. And well, you the, know, the it's, stories it's, it's, of the people a, that you met. That I mean, God, you, this is a lot more vulnerable of an interview than I was expecting. Uh, I thought yeah. we were going to be talking about everyone else. Corey, Corey and, didn't tell you. Um, but uh, no, I'll be honest, you know, five, uh, five, six years ago, six, six years ago, I'd gotten to a level of success and I was uncomfortable and I was like, this is ridiculous. I would have these major things where some of the biggest companies in the world would invite me in to teach their brand people. And, you know, I mean, just crazy shit that should just never happen to I've just my life is impossible. I mean, my agent called me last night, Benjamin, and she was screaming on the phone. I was like, what is going on? And she said, uh, I just got off a plane. I was like, well, that's exciting. And she said, no, 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 you don't understand. American Airlines offers 12 books. Some, some of the greatest writers in the world uh, as free audio books on the flight. And your book, your first book, The Iconist, is one of those books. And I listened wow. to half of it on the flight. Like, you know, that's crazy stuff. You know, that book was published in Chinese and Korean. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, my life is hard because I deal with a lot of forces, but I'm also an incredibly gratitude driven person no matter what happens. Mm -hmm. But five or six years ago, you know, just so much good was happening. And I was just like, something really, really, really good would happen, like unbelievable rock star shit. Right. And I would just be fucking miserable. Hmm. I've never really kind of expressed this publicly before. I mean, fucking miserable. Like the kind of thing, like you get a record deal and like, yeah, high fives. And I'd be sitting alone in my room going thinking about all the things that could go wrong <laughs> right okay. like all right okay. like that was the sense of doom was like crazy okay so every opportunity went, was a threat or a masked threat potentially yeah 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 so i went to therapist for the first time okay and um we're six weeks in and this woman this you know incredibly brilliant um gender neutral person didn't tell me what their pronouns were, but an amazing human, an amazing individual said, okay, we're, we have to do a diagnosis. And I was like, Oh, well, what are you talking about? And I've been swearing him. Is it okay if I swear? Yeah. Now? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I said, what are you, what are you talking about? And, um, and she said, well, you, there's a diagnosis and, and I, that's part of my job. You're right. And I said, well, um, uh, I, I didn't come for a diagnosis. I said, well, I, I got to give it to you. And she, I'll call her she, she never corrected me, uh, said, uh, you have um, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, acute, complex post-traumatic stress. Okay. To which my response, Benjamin, was to laugh in her face. Okay. 
This woman's eyes got wet. I talk about it in the book, which is a science full of incredible narrative. It reads like a novel and it has a lot of science in it. Um, her eyes got wet and she looks at me and she said, have you been listening, Jamie, to the stories you've been telling me? And I said, yeah. And she said, how can you not have post-traumatic stress? And it was like the whole lie, my whole bullshit lie came tumbling down. And over the next three weeks, I was, I was hugging the cactus. I was just looking at the truth of myself and realizing that my whole life narrative of being this superhuman Nietzschean-like character that was that could rise from the ashes was total bullshit. I was fucked up. I was scarred. I had been victimized. When you grow up like me uh, and you have to survive, the last thing you can be in a place like that in, mul in multiple for multiple reasons is a victim. So I was like, I've been victimized. I'm damaged. I am like so the whole life narrative fell apart. Okay. And so when that happened, I started going, now what do I do? I shared a literary, literary agent with a very well-known uh, military doctor. And she was uh, had quit her job after TAPS after 15 years and was working with this dual sympathetic reset of the nervous system. And um, I thought, God, I wonder if that would work for me. If it's biological, then maybe I don't have to be afflicted. Okay. For the rest of my life. Yeah. That, that was uh, almost three years ago. Okay. So was there something unappealing about other alternative forms of uh, dealing with this PTSD or, or AC PTSD? You know, it, it was really providential. I mean, you know, I knew this military doctor through my agent. And then after the book, The Iconist came out, Probably the most bona fide and accredited forensic psychiatrist in the United States, if not the world. His name is Dr. John J. Faber. Um, he read that book and he sent me a message on my website and he said, I'm a huge fan. I'd like to my foundation to fly you to Los Angeles to speak to inner city kids about your life. Hmm. And I thought I wrestled with that. I thought, well, you know, I'll come to L.A. and I'll talk to inner city kids, but I don't think I could take money for that. I had a speaking agent at the time. Okay. And uh, yeah. and I just thought I'll do it. I'll do it for free. But I'm not charging for going to my hometown to speak to kids that look like me. I'm not going to do that. And uh, and anyway, the, so I was just so happy that a scientist like my whole kind of Malcolm Gladwell ish, Dan Pink, Adam Grant, you know, my 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 perspective on the world is very TED talk. Uh, and so, you know, I didn't know how scientists, serious scientific people or academics would take my work. So this, so when I heard yeah, they're, looking, scientist, they're looking for data, not anecdote, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So here's a guy that was, was his last job before uh, running the Amen Clinic in Los Angeles was as the director of behavioral health for all of Humana. And he's the most accredited for, and he had written a book that he, right before this, that he, he had sent me his book called Escape rehabilitate your brain and stay out of the legal system. And so he is the one, the one that first got me thinking of this as a biological injury. And so, but he didn't know anything about the nervous system. So when I, when I came across this treatment, I, I was friends with this guy. I consider him to be an extremely close friend and one of the most important people that I've ever met in my life. This guy, Dr. John J. Faber, he's definitely one of the most compassionate human beings I've ever met. He's a special, special human. And he, I said, have you heard of this? He said, never. I said, could you vet it for me? He said, sure. 
And then he sent me like papers and a complete evaluation way, way to evaluate whether I should do it. It was kind of like, well, what's the upside? What's the downside? And um, uh, how invasive is it? Yeah. And so it was all upside, no long-term side effects outside of the, the first day. Like you're tired for a day and, and you're not dependent on drugs and you don't need to regulate your sympathetic nervous system every day with outside forces. I've heard that and you so, cry for a week or eight hours, is it? See, it's really random how we wake up. You see these guys, like he'll do it on somebody that was in Vietnam and you'll see a 75-year-old man wake up weeping. I, I actually don't like to show that footage because it almost looks like they're on drugs and they've had no drugs in them. They just have a local anesthetic in their sympathetic. Okay. Um, so, it, you know, yeah, there's people, it, there's a lot of people that wake up crying. In fact, when I decided that I was going to start getting interested in studying it in relation to the mass society, um, I was taking a friend of mine who was the son of a, a grandson of a billionaire and who had indulged his son and his father died young. Uh, and he'd been a drug addict most of his childhood. So was, he was an absentee father and then he died young. And this guy who didn't associate with trauma, who was the son of a billionaire, had all the symptoms. And I'd convinced him to go and meet me in Chicago to get this treatment. And he didn't think it was going to work. And it didn't work. You know, uh, right side is typically adult uh, adult trauma. Left side is typically childhood trauma. You can only do one side per day. A dual injection to the C7 and C3 vertebra using an ultrasound. Uh, using bufivacaine, which is the same $2 amount of uh, anesthesia that goes into an epidural. And it's a local anesthetic. It just turns off the sympathetic system, okay. turns on 10 minutes later at baseline. And I can so explain is, to you what is, happened. You're, you're just, you're causing this one part of your body to fall asleep or to go into yeah, yeah, stasis yeah, and then yeah, to wake back up. It's just a, it's yeah, just a reset. There's no yeah, other yeah, drugs yeah. involved other than just yeah, not, nothing, stopping nothing feeling like, for what, half an hour? That, that drug wears off within seven to eight hours. Okay. Okay. And then it's called bufivacaine the same way it would affect a person if you were to do it. It's a different part of the body, bufivacaine. Okay. Right. So no one has, so I don't want to make it about pharma, but you know, pharmaceutical companies, one of the reasons I decided to write this book is a private equity firm in Chicago teamed up with a doctor three and a half, four years ago and decided to open clinics with all the modern protocols all over the world. There's now 35 clinics in the United States, one in Australia and Israel and go and counting. Okay. okay. So I didn't, I would have never written a book on this. If a if a private, a private equity firm, they're not doing it. You know, maybe that guy wants to do good, but he saw an opportunity to change the world and make a lot of money. And so if that guy didn't exist, I probably would not have felt comfortable writing this book, The Invisible Machine. Okay. And the most important part of this book to me, um, Benjamin, is even if you didn't, there's no way anyone could read this book. I don't care who you are and not understand that your um, any sort of trauma that you've had is biological. Even if you never get the treatment, that changes your life, just that understanding. There's no book ever been written that where you cannot walk away from this book and not know that trauma is biological. That changes everything, even if you never do the treatment, because it changes the way you see yourself and it changes the way you see people around you. I don't see anyone anymore, an addict, a, 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 a criminal. I mean, listen, there's, there's evil people out there, but I don't see anybody like an addict or somebody on the street ever without just seeing a person that's overwhelmed by their nervous system. And all they're trying to do, like, like Gabor Mate says is regulate their nervous system. Mm -hmm. 
whether and they're just finding an illicit way to do it rather than illicit way to do it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, but you, you say um, trauma is biological as opposed to what? I mean, a, a mental health problem? Well, well, like, yeah, what, what yeah. You, I mean, just we, compare like, and contrast they, that because isn't... Well, we're, there, we're, there's a huge campaign to change the name right now from PTSI or from PTSD disorder to post-traumatic stress injury. So a disorder right? is like something that you're cooked, you're wiring... Is wrong, yeah, well, no, or... I think when we think of a disorder, we think of this like amorphous mental problem. Okay. And it's incredibly like mental illness. It's incredibly stigma stigmatizing. Okay. And you see yourself like, it's you, know, you, go to, yeah, you, you go to Afghanistan, you sacrifice your life, your body, your wife, your family, your kids get secondary PDS, post-traumatic stress, your wife gets secondary post-traumatic stress, your body gets broken if you're special forces. And then you come back and they're like, hey, you're crazy. That's dark. And it's wrong. Okay. It's unjust because all that's happening is that person has a biological injury and it can now be remediated. So just understanding that it's a biological injury changes yeah. the world. You look at your child different. Like now when I see people, when I used to see hustlers on the street, Benjamin, like if I'm walking around in Portland or New York or LA and I see somebody marking me, I would get rageful because I, because I grew up in an environment where it was offensive to me that that person thinks that they could, they're looking at me like, can I get something from that guy? Now, when I see somebody marking me like that, I just have compassion. It's completely changed the way I see the world. I just know I only see biology because that's what's going on. So there's the, so just, even if you didn't get out of the treatment, there's the, 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 the thing I know we've achieved in this book, this is the best book ever written on getting one to understand that their trauma is 100% biological and understanding the science behind that. That alone, if you did nothing, will change you and the way you move through the world for the rest of your life. And that's that, what this book, I think, and again, that's not totally a result of me. You know, The doctor's invention, I worked with this collaborative writer um, named Holly Lawrence, who was a, who'd written a very successful work on book on post-traumatic stress and an incredibly su a successful book that was turned into a movie um, called um, um, On Crown False Heights? Incarceration. Okay. Holly Lawrence, the book was called, uh, what's that? Um, I can't Sport think of the name of the book right now. The Everything Girl? No, 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 no. It's got like, yeah. it, it sounds like something that would be a movie about. Uh, How to Survive a Day in Prison or Arsenal of Hope? The Arsenal of Hope is the post-traumatic stress book. Okay. But there's another book that's the. Uh... So, and just to formulate a question, and thank you for letting us go down all these different. Uh, sure. Yeah. This, I've never done an interview, anything like this. It's very. Uh... Amorphous. Is it like uh, mental illness? No, it's, 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 it's amazing. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's special. Well, what would, what would be. Another... Crown Heights is the name of the film. Crown the name Heights. of the book. Okay. Yeah. Crown Heights. Yeah is so you, your proposition the proposition that dr eugene lipov has uh, formulated that this comes down to the the sympathetic nervous system could there be other things going on 100% there's other things okay. going on there's the yeah. vagal nerve there's a thing called polyvagal theory the guy that wrote polyvagal theory stephen Porges, who's the psychiatric chair at the Kinsey Institute in Indianapolis, he's very famous. He endorses Lipov's work and Lipov and this book heavily. Okay. Um, all the top trauma doctors and neuroscientists that I reached out to in the world uh, all agreed to talk to me and all contributed. 
Okay. To, to um, this which, to this book and to yeah. I so guess there's the to, bagel nerve. The there's okay. there's uh, uh, one of the things that I saw consistently. I really just set out to study the sympathetic nervous system, uh, and you know, and write a book that would read like a novel that would be a science book. I'm one of the top science and health publishers in the world, so I wanted to write like uh, a book that would be important that would read like a novel. It's 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 like who killed the electric car with consequences, you know the. Um, the, a person going to jail, our laws are based on intent, is suffering from the same physiological injury as somebody coming back from war and nobody knows it or is talking about it. That's okay. staggering. Yeah. Right. Wow. So to me, it was a psychological thriller. Right. Um, and that's how it reads with a ton of science. But what's going on physiologically in the body is when you get that overwhelming trauma or you carry the chronic stress, they can come from cyberbullying or not getting hugged as a child or being needled by your mom. Or, or your dad being away all the time. Children take on stress in crazy ways. They think everything is about them and everything is their fault. Yeah, yeah. And that um, What happens them. is okay. when this gets heightened, if it stays heightened too long or it gets overly heightened, uh, two things are um, it, uh, basically secreted in the brain. Norepinephrine, which is connected to moon swings and anxiety. You, so you can see that on a brain scan. Anybody with post-traumatic stress has excessive amount of norepinephrine in the brain. But the more important factor is you get an, uh, an increase in what's called NGF, nerve growth factor. So where there's maybe these nerves here, which connect to the brain here, um, where maybe there was four nerves, now there's eight nerves. And so this, and this is documented, nerves. like this is, it, this is objectively This is how we think it works right now. Okay. This is, this is the uh, supposition of how it works. The military studied this exhaustively. Obama endorsed this, as I said, back in 2008. Yeah. It's been in 60 Minutes, Joe Rogan, the New York, you know, every, uh, you know, Wired magazine, CBS this morning, um, uh, so, the doctor show. This is not nobody. At the, nobody's questioning this. And right now there's a five million dollar NYU study that's being done with functional MRI that makes it. Um, uh, and this injection has been around since 1926. It's just been reconfigured. So we know it's safe. It was developed for it's tingling hands in 1926. And uh the doctor reconfigured it. Um, so, and it's this is FDA approved for pain. Post-traumatic stress is pain. Okay. Okay. So, um, so this is not this, like this, out there. This yeah. is not out there. It's just the reason people don't identify with it is because they only see it. When they see it on Rogan, it's Dakota Meyer, a Navy SEAL. Or when they see it on the doctor show, it's a 9-11 first responder. Yeah. I think 40 to 50% of the U.S. Yeah. I think 40%, 40 to 50% because of the modern world. Um, of the U.S. and global population have this physiological injury, and nobody's talking about it. Mm -hmm. So, just with the, the just back to the science, this sure. neoephrine stuff. Okay, so let me explain. And then happens. also the so nerve growth. In. So, how, how does factor, how is that okay. reversed? So, the nerve growth factor calls what we does this thing that we call sprouting. It leads to extra nerve growth in the brain. The lay in uh, um, in, in the stellate ganglion connected to the brain. Um, what that looks like in kind of layman's terms is this. That signal that kind of jerks you into fight or flight that keeps you alive. And again, we should before we end, we should talk about how it relates to cancer and autoimmune disease and other diseases, sure, NADHD sure. and gender dysphoria. But um, but when it's when it when it um, when you get overwhelmed or you carry the stress too long, if it's too much, typically we'll come back to baseline. But if if it's too much or it goes on too long, you stay stuck up. What's going on in the body is you've grown, you've sprouted extra nerves in your stellate ganglion. 
So basically, in a layman's terms, what's happening is the signal's reversing. Rather than something that is supposed to last 30 or 90 seconds, where you're either supposed to die or kill the tiger or flee from the tiger, it gets stuck up, and the signal reverses with this, this gangle of nerves in your neck telling your brain 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, seven days a week, that your life is in danger. Yeah. That you're under threat of, of life. That's why if two people that live in the inner city, they have this injury, they get into an argument over a cheeseburger, somebody's going to the morgue and somebody's going to prison for the rest of their life. And their intent has nothing to do with it. This biological imperative, okay, is 100% believably telling them that this innocuous incident um, can kill them. So, so, okay. I spoke with Corey, our mutual friend about this and, and he told, yeah. uh, he told, he told stories because he worked on the film with you guys. He tells stories of, of uh, what happens when people go through this treatment. It seems like, um, I mean, I, I, I can't, I can't, I'm not authorized to talk about anybody else. Yeah. So but, but there, there's this yeah. really interesting thing that I've noticed in the stories that he's told me that after this reset happens, this flood of emotion, it's like oh, something yeah. has been repressed or something has not been well, able to be processed. Like, and then all of a sudden the floodgates open and, and he, you know, so you're like... watching E.T. Okay, while a tiger's chasing you. Okay, are you going to be able to experience the emotion of E.T.? Okay. So you're watching an E.T. while you're falling in love with your wife or being around your children. Are you going to be able to experience the emotion of your children, that connection, or that of your wife or your loved one, if a tiger's chasing you? No, yeah. you're going to turn off your emotions to focus on the survival of the tiger. So all so those emotions are being stored up in you. All... Oh right? yeah. So all, all of this life things... experience post-traumatic stress is, is oh, building up in you. Yeah. I mean, I could tell you about the, the tent pole in the book, the tent pole of our film, Trevor Beeman. He was a guy that looks like a Calvin Klein model, super soldier. He was molested by his father from eight to 16. The guy went to jail. He was beaten in the Latin Kings at 11, even though he's white. He shot up medical heroin in Afghanistan. This guy was suicidal for 20 years, homicidal towards his father for 30 years. Um, but it was only the military, he was special forces. So they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars fixing them. When you're special forces, they do not want crazy elite soldiers out there. So they'll spend, there's an endless paycheck. For Thank you, the U.S. military. Okay. <laughs> exactly. And Green Beret Foundation and, and other incredible organizations. Hmm. Um, so there was an endless paycheck for him. He'd done everything. And he was barely staying alive because he has a beautiful wife and these young kids. And um, I met him. Uh, convinced him to do it. It'll be two years ago, July. He went and did this. Um, we, he just did a TED talk for TED Portland, which is the largest TED in the world. And he's went, just went back to being a normal person. And what, one of the things that Trevor says is that all of uh, the work that he'd done for 20 years kicked in. All that psychological work, all that all training. All that psychological work, it all kicked in. You're basically, if you're, if you're doing this over... If you're doing EMDR, RTM, talk therapy, all these incredible modalities that we need over a over captive sympathetic nervous system, it's like doing uh, physical therapy over a broken leg. You need to reset the leg first. The other part of this puzzle is, is, is what we call traumatic brain injury or brain toxicity, right? Um, that is another major contributing factor, okay? So if you've had blunt force trauma to the brain head or if you look on a brain scan and you look at blunt force trauma to the brain, uh, uh, in terms of blood flow to the frontal cortex, various things around the brain that can agitate it. And you were to look at brain toxicity, which is caused by drugs and alcohol. 
90% of the people in our prison system self-identify as having drug and alcohol problems. It does, a guy coming back from Afghanistan and their, their blood flow to their frontal cortex, which is a physical injury, the decreased blood flow looks fairly similar to somebody that has uh, a drug and alcohol problem in terms of decreased blood flow to their frontal cortex. Okay. So that's, the, that, that, that's where this gets scary. If you have decreased blood flow to your frontal cortex, which is also, I call it almost a teeter-totter. Those are the primary two physical injuries that cause the extreme behaviors and the extreme agitations. So if you, if you have a situation where you've got decreased blood flow to the frontal cortex, which is your executive function, Okay, and then you have an overactive sympathetic where everything is a fight or a flight. That's where you get that that combination of decreased executive function and everything's a fight. Uh, that's where you get an OJ Simpson or a Aaron Hernandez. Yeah, that everything's con- a problem con- and you can't solve it. And then there's no brain power mitigating against it. Yeah, right. That and that's why you see so many people in our prison system, in my prison, and I in my estimation, and 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 I don't. Uh, I, I think that in the next five to 10 years, all of this stuff, all of this science is going to come out. The NYU study is happening right now. Um, but there's also, you know, the military has studied this exhaustively. There's a ton of studies yeah. that show that this is, uh, it's not, this is mainstream. You can, there's 35 clinics in the U.S. You can go down okay. the street, almost wherever yeah. you live and grab this. I'm just trying to say, if you're a yoga instructor or a plumber or a CEO or a teacher and you don't understand why your kids who haven't had trauma have those eight symptoms that I named. Anxiety, reactivity, hypervigilance, hyperarousal, mild paranoia, sense of doom, lack of sleep, suicide, you know, suicidal ideation, violent behavior. You don't, well, they didn't have trauma. Why are they experiencing this? They have an overactive sympathetic nervous system. Okay. So what happened to your sense of doom uh, going through the, this uh, therapy yourself? Oh, oh my gosh. You know, um, Benjamin, like, you know, no one's ever asked me that question. And it is the most transformative thing I've ever done in my life. Like, I almost want to cry talking about it because I live an incredibly stressful life. You know, that quote, for, there's a quote from Jerry Maguire where he says, we live in a cynical, cynical world with tough competitors. Okay. I'm a person that grew up, I'm an artist, so I'm, you know, highly sensitive. I'm like an antenna of sensitivity, but I also grew up how I grew up and it can be incredibly forceful and aggressive because I'm comfortable with it. So I'm, 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 you know, here I am being this highly sensitive person and I'm in this world of capitalistic forces, which are with really powerful CEOs and corporations. And it's, it can be punishing when art meets commerce yeah. You could say art meets chaos, right? And I work with corporations. I can't get my work out there unless I'm engaged with business. So I, I, it's very, I take that very seriously. But it can be punishing sometimes. And it was pretty much unbearable, you know, just my work. Because I work for some of the biggest companies in the world. Um, now, um, it do, I'm at peace. When, when, when things happen that would normally rock me for two weeks, I just kind of go, huh. You know, uh, it's really when something extreme happens that I notice it or when I'm watching a movie or I'm with someone that I'm really fond of and I feel joy in a way that I've never felt or else like crying or laughing during a movie okay. in a way that I didn't before. So you um, but, but, but also when a really stressful situation comes in, I used to feel it in my entire body. 
Okay. And, you know, people get inured. You know, you do this and then six months go by, you forget how you used to feel. So sometimes I forget how I used to feel before. And then something really stressful will happen. And I'm just like, whoa. And that's when I go, holy shit. I cannot believe I'm cool right now. So it, it sounds like just from the very brief description that whenever something positive would happen, you, there was always kind of a distance between you and it. And whenever something yes. stressful happened, you were really inside of it. And so you your, landscape, even, my, your landscape has you know, changed. Yeah, really, the landscape is completely changed. You know, re, really inside of it, it doesn't do it justice. My body would overwhelm me. I would get uh, a tingling. If it was a really stressful situation and it was jarring news, I would get a tingling sensation of absolute terror throughout my entire body. I had bad dreams. You, you know what I mean? I had, uh, you know, if you had asked me if I had anxiety before, I would have said, no, I'm fine. That's because chronic anxiety was so built into me. I didn't even know that there was such a thing as not having. It. Now that I don't have it, I kind of go, wow. <laughs> you know, so, like, I can't believe I was letting myself live that way. And that's okay. why as much as I care about the military and, and the neighborhoods of the people I grew up in, it's the smaller cohort of people. That's 2% of the population, the incarcerated in the military. Um, I want to bring this to the other 48% of people that don't think they have trauma, yeah. that are middle-class people. That's where the numbers are. And I want them to experience relief. And so I'm, you know, I am, yeah. I want people to read this book so that they can understand what's going on inside their bodies. Yeah. Yeah. And then I want them to share that. How does I how do, does it not go? How do you flip the switch and it not go back to trauma response? Like how does how does this? Well, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. If you get re-traumatized, Benjamin, you um, you can re-injure yourself. Okay, but yeah. how how does it how does it how does just the the act of it falling asleep and being okay okay rebooted... okay here's what that happens okay so back to nerve growth factor so the minute you do this injection okay. Uh, again, right side to dual injection using an ultrasound uh, into this. They use a even milder anesthetic before they give you that anesthetic. Uh, so you, it feels like a pinch, right? Um, it turns it off. The, uh, you you're basically with using bifidicade, the same $2 amount of anesthesia that goes into an epidural, ironically. And I, what's also ironic about that is the doctor discovered this when he was doing research on women going through menopause. And dealing with hot flashes and some of them he was reconfiguring this 100 year old shot at that time 80 year old shot and they started saying their post-traumatic stress symptoms went away and so that's when he started he was at that point he became a serious researcher and he found it hmm. um, but back to what's happening in the body the minute you do that injection depending on whether you had adult trauma you're if you had adult trauma you're going to experience that war sexual assault first day second day um, and I can get back to that billionaire grandson story. Second day, um, left side. They only they always do the right side first. But the minute that he injects, you know, to the C3 and the C7 in the stellate ganglion, um, and he turns it off, two things happen to the brain. The norepinephrine level goes back to normal. And you can see that on a brain scan. Okay? okay. And again, I was really lucky. It wasn't the ideal scan. We used a spec scan. But Daniel Amen, who is one of the most, you know, um, well-known neuroscientists and doc psychiatrists in the world, who's more into looking at this as a biological injury than he is to drugging people. Uh, he's got seven New York Times bestseller. He's a media star. He was in Justin Bieber's biopic. He's on the Kardashians. He's the most famous, quote, you know, 
neuroscientific psychiatric clinician in the world, and he's trying to fix people by remediating the brain. He's been an incredible partner for me. So I, a lot of people, I would scan their brain in Amen Clinic, and then I would do this treatment on there over two days, and I would scan their brain again less than 24 hours later. Okay? My first coat, um, but what's going on is the minute you do that injection, norepinephrine goes back to normal. Okay? And then the nerve growth factor um, goes back to normal. It stops being secreted in the brain. When the nerve growth factor um, stops being secreted, okay, it, that extra sprouting of nerves cannot, uh, it, it, it can't be supported without the NGF being constant. Okay. So the minute you, that NGF goes back to normal, those extra nerves where you had, where first you had four, then you got traumatized and now you have eight, that's the injury. It goes back to four. Okay. And that's what's actually happening anatomically. Okay. Okay. And without those two uh, stimuli uh, or, or factors going on, you're operating at, let's say, a non-tiger modality. You're just picking fruit if we go back. Like you're just yeah, kind of, you're again, ready, you know, but you're not, you know, you're, you're in that balanced state. Oh, you're not on tiger flight. You're saying if I never have been injured. No, I'm saying once those two things are, are remediated, the, uh, the, the chemical... Oh, yeah, you're in the, the non-tiger state. You're just a person in the world. You become a person in the world. And then that's when you start to... This is the great story aspect of it. That's when you start to... You know, like... The, like Did you ever watch Lost? You know, the, the last season where they start to remember who they are. You, you go back, you, you start flashing back. Like all that suppressed stuff. Yeah, I mean, Trevor talks about how he had a horror show his entire life and then playing in the back of his mind. Yeah. So he'd be with his kids or his wife, and he's always seeing this horror show. Like, he has the memories, but the horror show just turns off. Okay, yeah. The, the being it in there, yeah. And, yeah. and for you, yeah. and for you, you were able to see yourself, your environment, or you just be, you're plugging into your environment differently. It's not oh even just, God. like, the stories. Oh, my God. I mean, I'm, you know, it's the most transformative thing I've ever done in my life. Like, I, I, I'm, listen, I'm a, I'm a sought-after art director, and um, I was overwhelmed with people wanting my wanting me to make things for them when my first book came out i was a year and a half year into that and i found out about this and i dropped everything for two years because it's kind of like if you were if you met einstein before he was famous and he said hey um i've got this thing i'm working on kind of called relativity want to write a book with me <laughs> right yeah. i dropped uh, and turned down work for 18 months, two years, because I thought it was, I just couldn't believe that nobody was, this wasn't in the mainstream. And, you know, my publisher who published the China study and is distributed by Penguin Random House, they're one of the top science and health publishers in the world. Um, when they were interested in publishing this book, I thought, uh, well, that means that it'll be in every Barnes and Noble in America. It'll be everywhere. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, get, I couldn't look past it. I so knew exactly. You, you what had your mean. own personal experience and then you go after yeah. this book and, and you've worked on a documentary to the accompanies yeah, this book. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, and, and I, I suppose, and from what you've, you, what you've revealed about the book, like you, you base it on science and then anecdotes. So over and over and over again, you've seen other people similarly affected or maybe cured would be the. Well, back to the billionaire son. This was the big moment I had. I'll give you, I had one day that was a moment before I went to Fort Bragg. So this is January, two years ago. I get this guy to meet me in Chicago and he had lived in Florida and he canceled on me a couple of times uh, because of weather and his kids. And one time I was landing in Chicago, but this was the third time he shows up 
He does the right side. This kid had guy had childhood trauma. We went out to this fancy restaurant in Chicago. He's like, this isn't going to work. I don't know why I came here. I don't even know if I want to go do the left side tomorrow. And I was like, well, I, I hope you do. So that morning, I go with him and his wife to the treatment center. He shows up to do the childhood side the next day. And I'm downstairs waiting with his wife. Um, and uh, um, uh, well, he goes through the treatment. The doctor comes down the stairs. He and I are close friends at this point. I say, hey, doc, how's he doing? The, the doc said, uh, this is a guy that never associated himself with trauma, okay? He says, uh, he says he feels great. The wife burst into tears. I'm like, whoa, 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 we don't even know if this worked yet. Just, whoa, do not cry. We do not know if he's okay. We do not know if this worked. And she says, Jamie, you don't understand. Um, in the uh, entire time I've known my husband, he's never said he's felt great. So now the three of us are talking downstairs, okay? And um, a woman walks into the clinic in downtown Chicago, winter, and beautiful, smiling under her mask. You know, I break COVID to do this, okay? She sees the doctor. She runs up to him, leans in, gives him a hug for 30 seconds, turns to my friend and I, points to him and says, the miracle man, and runs downstairs, I go, come on, Doc, what are you paying her? And accounting is downstairs. So I think she works in accounting, right? She works for you. And he says, I just met her yesterday. She's one of the worst sexual assault cases we've ever had. Yesterday, she wouldn't let me near her or alone in a room with her. Hmm. So we, we come downstairs. The husband's walking different. He's different. We probably get 20 feet back to the hotel. He goes, stop. We just need to stop, 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 stop. And he turns to me and he says, Jamie, if this was the only reason I was ever meant to know you, this is why I was meant to know you. I, I, after that, I sent eight more of my successful white CEO friends that didn't think they ever had trauma over the next two years. That So he, we go back to, he's recovering, um, and his wife calls me an hour later and says, hey, there's a health food shop down the street where they have like vegan stuff and smoothies. Do you want to go with me? Because my husband's going to be, you know, this has to need seven hours to wear off. I was looking for something to do. So I said, yeah, I'll go to the vegan shop with you. It's COVID. We walk into this little vegan shop uh, in downtown Chicago. And there's a woman there, an older woman. She's wearing a mask. Um, uh, she says, hey, how are you? Hey, I say, hey, how are you? How's it going? And very strange response. This woman said, it's been a horrible time. My husband jumped off a building and killed himself this summer. And I was just like, what? I just walked into a vegan shop. Like, this is too much right now, right? But I just kind of, you know, had this experience with my close friend. And I said, and then she says, which I, I, she says, but thank God my daughter was with him at the time or it would have been way worse. This guy had jumped off a high rise. So now I'm confused. And I say to this woman, I'm so sorry that happened. Why would you be happy that your daughter was with your husband right after he jumped off of a high rise? <laughs> right. And she said, because she saw his face right before he ran upstairs. And um, she knew the person that ran up their stairs was not her father. What was it? It was this hmm. lying to his brain. Yeah. I'm really, you know, it's, I'm, I want to bring this to, the people that are listening to this or watching us that like, hey, my husband doesn't really have trauma, but he's always, but he has these symptoms. Um, yeah. My child 
doesn't have, you know, didn't really have trauma, but he, ha she, or he or she has those symptoms. I want that. I want to bring it away from. I want to bring it to regular people so that, like, because there was a moment with the billionaire's kid, the the billionaire's uh, the, the grandson. I don't want to say who it is, but he's a very famous billionaire. And I was, they live in uh, the South. You know, they were um, West Palm Beach. And um, I was with, I mean, they'd moved to Hilton Head, but I, I, I was with the mother a few months later at their home in Hilton Head. And, um, you know, I was asking her about the treatment. She's a religious woman. And so, you know, uh, you know, I was kind of very interested in how she would see it through her kind of Christian lens, you know. And she said something really kind of simple to me. She said, no, he's very different. It's very interesting watching him with the kids. There was a two-year-old and a three-year-old. Hmm. You know, he's just very different. You're watching him engage with the kids. So, yeah, I'm 100% glad he did this. Okay. You know, I said, well, what did you, uh, I said, okay. And what did you think when he was thinking about doing it? She said, I just prayed that the right, he would come up with his right answer. And he decided to do it and I supported him. But, you know, it was interesting that she's talking about how he's engaging with the kids different because it was very passive the way she said it. And I was, and I had this profound moment in my head, Benjamin, where I thought, this thing that she's talking about in a passive way, well, post-traumatic stress is passed on. They call it secondary post-traumatic stress. It's very commonly passed on. And we might have, we could have just seen the stop of five generations of trauma. Hmm. Like, you know, like, because he's emotionally there for his children. And so, you know, you can look at that in a way where it's like, oh, yeah, he's there for his kids. Or you can look at it in a way we maybe we just stopped five generations of emotional trauma for a guy that didn't think he was traumatized. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, it's um, like I said, I think that this book is going to grow and grow and grow. Um, we're getting ridiculous responses. It reads like a novel, like a, uh, and um, you know, I was asked on a podcast the other day, it's a, a, hu a huge show uh, with millions of followers. And the guy hosting it said, you know, somebody says, you know, it sounds like you're selling this. And I said, I never sell anything. I sell ideas and people can buy it or not. I don't give a shit. But my response to that was, I'm selling fucking relief. Hmm. I do not like the idea that in the modern zeitgeist in the Western world, that people are walking around with a biological injury and we think they're crazy. It bothers me. And so even if you don't want to go do this treatment, you can't read this book and not know that it's biological. That right there is going to give you hope and relief. That right there changes the world if no one does it. It was funny. I asked Jeff Dardia one time, a guy that the guy that runs the uh, Health Initiative Task Force at Fort Bragg, Special Forces guy. I said to him, "Do you think everyone that goes up in poverty has this?" And he and he said, "Inner city poverty, probably, but poverty, no. I was stationed in Africa. I don't think anybody growing up in rural poverty has this." And I said, and, hmm. and I said, why? Well, you know, they, they don't have the comparison culture. Okay. And their nervous system is being constantly mitigated by nature. They're not living in the synthetic environment with the chronic stress of the digital deluge, constant bad news, politics, COVID, constant bad news. Um, yeah. Uh, so he said, no, I don't think anybody has this, you know, any children have this uh, growing up in poverty in a rural environment. Hmm. I wonder 
if uh, as this treatment uh, it rolls out and more studies are produced over time, if if people will start to interact with their environment differently, or if the environment thems- itself, like you were talking about, like this, all these artificial environments with this artificial stimulus coming out, uh, coming in, will mean less to them or, or seem less real to them because the nervous system is no longer believing in it from a, you know, I, I think so. I think, and I've gotten really interested in resilience techniques. What, what are the ways that we can bring our nervous system down? Hmm. Breath work, running brings in yoga manifest. Yeah. I've met so many yoga instructors that don't think they have trauma that have this, that probably became a yoga instructor because it gives them a job where they can regulate their nervous system every day, huh, but you have yeah. to do it every day. Right. Yeah. Okay. What if you could just live a solar existence and do yoga because you loved it? Yeah. You weren't calming your nervous system every day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. So it's, it's, um, uh, but yeah, I'm very interested in, in these days in learning about, uh, you know, uh, um, things that mitigate against the nervous system. Like our diet has a massive effect on it. You know, uh, Corey's girlfriend, Camille, uh, Kaifo, who's a detransitioner, you know, she had mental health problems her whole life. And now, and then she had this horrible transition experience, decided to go back to being a woman. And because she had, you know, physical complications from surgery as part of her transition, she had to get obsessed with her physical health, her diet, every aspect of her physical health. And what she says is, the minute she became obsessed with all the different things she was allergic to, inflammatory foods, all you know, really became aware of physical health and implemented that in her life, all of these mental issues that led to her false gender dysphoria went away, mm-hmm. purely from an obsession with physical health and diet. So, um, and, di- and if you go and you follow Doc Amen on Instagram, which is, you know, the, uh, the probably the biggest health Instagram in the world. I mean, it's got 2.5 million followers. You know, he, he's a constantly on there talking about foods that reduce anxiety, foods that cause anxiety, right? So there's all sorts of things that we can do yeah. to, to keep the, the nervous system in check. I call it resilience, resilience tools. And there's a lot of work that's been done. There's a woman out in California. Her name is Nkem Mfumbo. If I'm getting her name wrong, I apologize. You can Google it. Uh, and she has what's called the resilience toolkit. And it's all these incredible things that you can do to calm yourself when you start to feel like the nervous system go up so that you're not staying in that state of con- chronic stress. Mm-hmm. And it's Gabor Mate's work. You know, if you were his new book, The Myth of Normal, is you know, all about, you know, how if he was going to invent a society that would make us crazy and make us and destroy our nervous systems, he'd invent the society we live in now. <laughs> so, um, Fair enough. you know, the nervous system can be reset. It is biological. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, again, um, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of pushback. It's just mostly extreming at the extreme. And then, you know, it's now going into the mainstream with this PE firm opening up Stella centers, if you're going to get this, go to the Stella Center because it's the place where the doctor, my co-author, and is the what, chief. What kind of um, Doctor I guess, Eugene how, 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 do, how are you um, diagnosed that this treatment right, might be for you? Uh, um, sure it's typically sort of symptomatic. There's a post-traumatic okay. stress yeah. quiz you could take right on the Stella Center website. And the, and the danger of this or the the, what, the that's side the beauty effects. of it because it was originally created to, to the reason he was studying it with women going through hot flashes is because it was used, it came out in 1925, 1926 as a treatment for tingling hands. He thought tingling hands, tingling all over the body. You have a 
this nerve center runs from your amygdala all the way through to your toes. Yeah. But the most important part of it runs from your amygdala through your chest. And he came across a paper in 1980 where a woman was doing clipping in the select ganglion, which is like going invasively doing surgery and clipping nerves to shut them off. Mm. And, uh, and, and women were saying that their hot flashes went away and so did their post-traumatic stress. So he started figuring out, he started trying to figure out, okay, where does this need to go? And what, and, and are the ways we can improve it so that um, you don't have to do something as invasive, you know, invasive, yeah, yeah. as no, invasive no as a surgery. It's just, it, yeah. it's just a reset and the, the drug itself lasts seven, eight hours. And then seven, eight hours. And the only side it. effect is you get this thing called Horner syndrome, which is what you want oh. because that way you can. Horny you, syndrome? You know, horners, horners. Oh, okay. Horners just means you get like a slight droopy eye. Okay. For how long? Seven hours. It's five hours, oh, okay. seven hours. Okay. And yeah. then and most people that could be staring right at you and they wouldn't notice it. You'll notice it. Yeah. And you'll get it on the side you did it on the right side. And if you do it the next day, you'll just get it on that side. It wears right off. And because it's been around a hundred years and we knew an ultrasound, uh, it's it it's it's excessively safe compared to other medical procedures. Mm -hmm. And it's inexpensive. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, how can people get in touch with your work and find the book? And uh, is the documentary out? Yeah, no, the documentary is um, not out. We're yeah. we're still shooting. I mean, it's about ninety. Looking really done. looking forward to that. Um, yeah, well, that I want to be. You know that I I we've you know Corey co Corey Drayton co wrote that with me. Yeah, and again we you know and he you know Corey says that he believes he got cancer because his his nervous system was overregulated. Oh, you were going to talk about that before. Yeah, you know, what happens is when you have an overactive uh, nervous system, it discombobulates the scavenger sister system in the body, which kills disease and cancer. Okay. So, you know, so I think we're going to find that, that, this, that this system, especially if you compare it to Nadine Burke Harris's work, with, with, which she was able to prove that the leading cause of disease in adults is adverse childhood experiences. What's causing that? It's a dysregulated. When the science, the more we research, we're going to see that it's a, an overactive sympathetic nervous system, okay. which can now be remediated. So you're not just feeling better. You may be preventing a disease that you're going to have in 10 years or 20 years. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's one of the things we're studying right now is that disease is related to aging. And so if you can, um, uh, remediate the sympathetic nervous system you basically slow down the aging process yeah yeah okay um mm -hmm. but where you can you can go to dr eugene lipov.com it's an incredible resource again if you do decide to get, get this go to get the doctor the modern protocols exist at stella center go to the stella center because there's the modern protocols are the difference between sometimes a 70 percent now it's up to 85 to 90 percent effective okay so you want to go to a stella center and get where the doctor is the chief medical officer. I'm not their ambassador. They don't pay me. Yeah. I just want people to get the relief. And they're all across the United States at this point. 35 across the United States. You're not getting this if you're not getting what's called DSR SGB. It was originally called slight ganglion block. Block just means a block of anesthetic put in place. Yeah. Um, blocked into place. Um, but yeah. right now, well, you have to get what's called DSR um, SGB, dual sympathetic reset. Um, we're in every Barnes and Noble in America and we're all books are sold Amazon. Um, there's an audio book. Um, and, uh, um, but yeah, Stella center, you can take a quiz if these symptoms resonated with you yeah. and, uh, it really, uh, and then every, all these other incredible therapeutics that we have out there are so much more effective. I mean, I get really frustrated because 
you know, like we've made marijuana use so innocuous and accessible through pens and legalization. And I'm not for the criminalization of drugs, but but uh, we made this thing into this kind of really innocuous thing. But we have the brain science on on alcohol and THC is in alcohol ravages the brain. Um, THC and cocaine triple ravage the brain. THC destroys the brain. Hmm. Okay, so. I, I don't want to, you know, Dr. Amen talks about Daniel Amen. You don't want create, so, to create a problem to solve a problem. Right. So I'm for anything where people can experience when you, when you have somebody that's using self-medicating through whether it's, uh, you know, an, a, an illicit drug or illicit drug often to you're creating a problem to solve a problem. You're changing a brain to feel better. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm, I don't like any of that. Um, if you can remediate the system without creating another problem. So the invisible machine, we call it that is because it's a simple mousetrap like mechanism that exists between your select ganglion in your neck and your brain. And, uh, it's a machine and it's, it's invisible, but it's not really invisible. It's only invisible. If you have the right, the wrong scanner, if, if I were to take your, you, you, and somebody that had these symptoms and I were to scan their brain with a functional MRI, I would see that increase in norepinephrine in their brain, and I would see overactivity in the amygdala. I could do this treatment on them over two days. And of course, you know, we have those levels go up and down, and we have amygdala activity that goes up and down. But if you do this um, on, on, an, on a chronic, on a, on a comprehensive data set, it accounts for those fluctuations. And it, and it so, generally maintains itself like a year out, two years out. Uh, yeah, generally it lasts, it can last forever. Yeah. You know, but you know, there's epigenetic factors. If you come from, you know, if you grew up in epigenetic poverty, you know, uh, you might have, you might have to go back and get it in three, five years every time, but maybe then it gets less and less each time. But most of the time, hmm. uh, it works, uh, w- with a relative level of permanence. Hmm. And so Jamie, this is a fantastic amount of work that you're doing. And I guess you're still working on the documentary, but is there anything else you're looking forward to doing? Like going forward as an artist, as a creator, like something on the horizon? Yeah. Thing? I mean, right now, you know, again, last thing on the, uh, the invisible machine, you know, Holly Lawrence was the collaborative writer that really helped put this together and make this book work. Um, but I want the last thing I'll say on the invisible machine is, and before I move on to my next projects that I really care about, hmm. uh, is, um, I want people to understand what is going on inside their body when they feel a certain way. This book covers that and it reads like a novel and it is packed with science. Um, so that you can understand what's going on in your body and the body of people around you. I think we, and I give Holly all the credit in the world for this. Holly Lawrence, uh, the book does that in a way that's better than any book that I think is out there. I just don't think there's been a book that's covered it uh, in a way that where you can't read this book and know that at the end. So I want people to know what's going on inside them and the people that they care about. Um, so that's why I would urge you to read it and, uh, and, and, uh, and again, uh, it reads like it could be a movie. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, and so, but, uh, you know, again, the, the, my publisher published a China study, which is probably the most, one of the most successful science and health books of all time. They're known for pop mm. science and health, and they're a juggernaut in that field. Um, but uh, yeah, what I'm working on now is I'm working on uh, a redesign of, of the fine art industry. 
So I'm creating uh, a, a very elite global digital art gallery. Um, but basically, you know, I have Wait, a lot this of is you, NFTs. Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. I'm not interested in <laughs> NFTs. No NFTs. Practical, physical, tangible, touchable art. Mm. Mostly visual art and sculpture. But basically, you know, the, like the Iconist, my first book covers the, the uh, what I call the primal laws as to why we notice things, what magnetizes attention, whether it's a story, a book, a visual image, design, business. It shows people how to magnetize attention based on primal laws of human perception. Mm -hmm. So now my what I'm working on is is um, it's easier to become a professional soccer player in Europe or join the NBA or the NFL most of my than it is to become an artist in the sense that it's a if. If you want to be in the NFL or the NBA or a soccer player, there's a path. It's a hard yeah. path. Yeah. You have to like stand out in high school, did one school, there's a draft, but there's steps. Okay. Most of my friends that are successful artists, whether they're actors, directors, painters, and that are at the highest level in the world, they didn't go to Parsons. They didn't go to RISD. Most of them barely finished high school. There's no path for an artist. So I've got a book. Do we want there to be? Because the path would be just corrupted, wouldn't it? No. If I give the artist the path hmm. themselves, it's almost okay. like a practical. It's an extension of the artist's way, which is the yeah. internal work. This is the external okay. work. Oh. And it allows an artist to find their coordinates. So I'm turning that into a school and also a digital gallery for those that make it through the school. Like but a school a, course, like a course, a school, basically it's a school. Amazing. Um, and it will allow, it'll help art. Cause every artist has different goals. Some artists would be happy being selling work for $10,000 or $20,000 in Beverly Hills and Santa Fe, New Mexico. Some people want to be with museums and collectors. So it allows artists to find what they want to do as an artist, musician, sculptor, architect, yeah. and then plot a course based on their goals. So it gives artists this coordinates yeah. so that they can plot, you know, so that they can have certainty. And why it's important for artists is because, um, and again, this is a business that will eventually be a book. Um, but um, why, so anybody that's interested in this can reach out to me on my website, iconist, I-C-O-N-I-S-T dot L-T-D. Um, but what is when artists don't, aren't able to achieve their goals or their dreams, Benjamin, it's hard on them. They invert and they get involved in all sorts of crazy self-destructive behavior. Mm -hmm. So a, I want the, I want to make the fine art world, which is become like pizza, the hut from space balls. Fine art world is eating itself with its idiocy. And we're not seeing the best artists because of how exclusionary it is. Yeah. Like when I think of poverty, I don't think like all these people out here of all these suffering people that just need someone to come save them. When you grow up in a neighborhood, it's just as complex and diverse as Beverly Hills. So when I think of poverty, I think of lost genius, engineering genius, untapped physical potential. genius, yeah. untapped potential yeah. for the society. Yeah. We need to help. We need to even things out because because we're, we have a genius pool we're not using. Yeah. Okay, that's how I see it. But um, yeah, so th that's what I'm working on is a reconfigure is a, to get the fine art world to understand what it is uh, and to redesign it. You know, we used to needed we needed, you know, uh, 50 years ago, we needed to get everyone into a gallery for the most important artists uh, in New York City because we didn't have the Internet. Now, the most elite gallery in the world doesn't need a physical space. Mm -hmm. So I'm curating that right now. I have five artist residencies scaling wow. the shows of 40 giant paintings each five shows right now 
um, that will be the first artists that I've taken from scratch. I mean, they didn't have a style when they met me and were, and that will be the first people that are part of this Amazing. elite gallery that I'm curating. So as a gallery, yeah. as an art director, I am curating uh, a gallery that will change the way that we look at the economics of art. Yeah. One thing that I've noticed from having a lot of friends and being a humanities major myself, a lot of artist friends, is that they go to art school and they, they learn all this technique, but whenever it comes to the business part or the practicality part, like it's always incredibly lacking, like the actual, and, and that's the part of the problem with the academia. It's just all a bunch of people who just end up getting jobs in academia. Don't have to make they don't it out. Te- the they don't teach at art school how to become an artist. All right. So I, the, but the school that I'm starting in this book that will be coming out in the next few, you know, I don't know when I can get it out. Probably, yeah. it probably will be my next book. Okay. They're all stacked at this point. You know, like I have more, book, like I don't want to put a book out every more than every three and a half years or it's like, you know, it starts to become like a joke, but like it's probably <laughs> going to be the next book. And what it is, is exactly what you said, Benjamin. It is, it is the practical tools of, of defining who you are and, and following a path for an artistic career with certainty because they don't teach that at art school. No. So I have, but you can get part of that information from the iconist, my first book. But um, this will, this is for artists to give them uh, a set of steps and, con- and constructs that they can apply that will have them work with certainty. Hmm. And because, and I want that relief because it took me way too long and it was a lot of suffering that I experienced. So I've reverse engineered it. Yeah. And like, that's how I did everything. Like when you, people sometimes say, how do you get out of your situation? And I was really, I, and I like to see myself, I see myself as an escape artist. And I used to say that I Houdini myself out of situations, but really what I'm doing is I reverse engineered poverty. I reverse engineered book writing. I've reverse engineered write, uh, uh, books, uh, art, being art, uh, creating art. And I've reverse engineered uh, through all my successful friends across a myriad of mere mediums and the highest levels of success in the world, there's a pattern that they don't even know they follow. Mm. And I've reverse engineered that. And I'm going to be providing that for any artist that wants it. Amazing. Yeah. Jamie, it was so great to meet you, to, to hear the story that the, uh, invisible machine like is just f- fantastic work. I've, I've been speaking with Corey about this for a while and he's just, uh, the testimonies that he's given me working on the, yeah, the invisible machine, phenomenal. the invisible machine, the startling truth about trauma and the scientific breakthrough that can transform your life. Yeah. Excellent. And yeah. I'll include links to all your different amazing projects down in the description. Thank okay. you so much for Thank your you. time. It was excellent to speak with you. This was an amazing interview, Benjamin. It's different than anything I've ever done. You caught me <laughs> off guard. I thought we weren't even doing the interview yet, and we and I was already 20 minutes in. Uh, so, um, yeah, I just want to thank you on a personal level um, for something that, you know, I was kind of, I didn't sleep very well last night, and I thought, God, what's this going to be? <laughs> oh. And, uh, and uh, You're not used to all this media stuff, even though you Oh, been... no, I'm kind of used to it, but, yeah. like, I've never... And I do unusual interviews every once in a while. And when I do, I make sure I say to the host, hey, this one was a little different, you know? Yeah. Thank you. But no, this was uh, one of the most extraordinary conversations I've ever had because it didn't feel like an interview. It felt like you tripped on me at the bar and started talking <laughs> to me and started recording <laughs> me without telling me. Uh, so uh, for that reason, um, I, I, I thank you. Well, thank you so much. I'll end the mm-hmm. record. I'm going to end the recording now, so I'll okay. tell you that's over. Got it. Thank you.